this is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 22nd of January 2019. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem. For anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my fully merged co-host, Jon. How are you doing, Jon? Fully merged? Oh, definitely. Oh. You definitely seem like someone that's properly merged. <laughs> Well, I guess I could be seen as the merger of my parents or something like that. But that's a different kind of podcast, I'd say. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's very R-rated. <clears throat> okay. How how are you doing, my dear? Very well, thank you, darling. I mean, if anybody's merged, it's got to be you. This is true. And <laughs> this is a news episode, so I guess we should probably talk about it, as I can finally now talk about it. Um, yeah, it's about, uh, well, for anything related to Hadoop, this is major news, although it's more on a business level, I'd say, than on a technology level at this point in time. But we are, of course, talking about the ongoing and now finalized Hortonworks-Cloudera-Cloudera-Hortonworks merger. Indeed. The merger of equals completed. <laughs> Uh, but until now, we haven't talked about it because, as we said earlier, as Dave is part of uh, Hortonworks, he was under certain legal obligations. And to be true to be said, there was not not that much to be talked about because with any kind of merger, there's a lot of legalese going behind closed doors. And you don't even want to know what's happening there, I think. At least I don't want to know what's happening there. Indeed. But about a week ago, uh, there was a joint webcast uh, that happened by uh, jointly people from Caldera and from Hortonworks. And there's been some reporting about that webinar on the interwebs. So I thought mm-hmm. it was a good idea to just uh, have a quick look at that. And the article I picked out, unless you have another one, is a one from Data Nami, which kind of gave the best overview recap of the session. Mm. Now, to be honest, uh, the session was very much a first, uh, hello, here's who we are thing. So the marketing yeah. was very, very, very heavy in there. A lot of buzzword bingo being played. The <laughs> single piece of technical information that came out of there, which I found important and I think is important for our listeners as well, is the announcement, I guess, of a new product. And in the world of acronyms, if you're still able to uh, get find your place among, amongst all the acronyms, well, there's new ones coming in there. We had CDH, we had HDP, now we have CDP. Indeed. Cloudera Data Platform. Yeah, now wasn't CDP also the bad guy in Robocop? Uh, that's OCP. Oh, okay. But, uh, nice try. <laughs> For some reason, Omnicorp, come about. on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably going to be the new one. But uh, yeah, anyway, CDP is uh, the announced new thing that will apparently contain all the good things of both CDH and HDP. But at this point in time, there has been no real definition of what it will contain uh, there's of course yep. the, the marketing hype from edge to future to cloud to whatever so everything's going to be in there obviously not everything is going to be in there but there's no information there there was uh, i think the part that arun was talking about uh, doing a very fancy on-screen uh, writing there was a bit of information about the timelines involved, mm-hmm. and uh, unsurprisingly, the old versions, the CDH and HTTP, well, I should say current versions, will still be supported for about three years, and that's because they have maintenance contracts in place, support contracts in place that take yeah. time, so no real surprise there. If anybody was surprised by that, that's uh, yeah, normal, but I also wouldn't expect a lot of innovation and new stuff to be happening there. Maybe in the short run, there will still be some innovation there, but... 
I would expect that the, the CDP will get the most of the attention now. And in the webinar also, there was, a lar- uh, I think, a, a bit of an emphasis on look at migrating from the mm. partials of CDH and HCP towards that common CDP that's going to come out soon, that trademark. Yeah. But uh, without any kind of dates given there, again, which I wouldn't expect. Uh, they're still based on open source uh, projects. And uh, yeah, roadmaps and open source projects are always an interesting thing, right? Indeed. The other <laughs> sort of nice thing about the the article that you mentioned and the uh, the with the screenwriting is the fact that they're talking about um, yeah CDH six dot X and HDP three dot X will be the sort of the first uh, that will be able to upgrade to the new um, CDP release. Mm-hmm. So that was the the release previously sort of. Uh, called the Unity release that people were talking yep. about at the very early releases. Um, and then sort of at a later um, CDP release, there'll be the ability for sort of CDH 5.x and HDP 2.x users um, to be able to upgrade to this new uh, CDP release. But as you said, there's no no actual time frames uh, on that graph, just... Uh, the start axis, which is now, and the end axis of end of three three years of support in uh, first calendar year 2022, first calendar quarter 2022, yeah. Yeah, it also makes full sense that they're all going to merge the new versions first and the yeah, older versions yeah. secondary because, well, the new versions are probably going to be closer to the end result, so it's going to be less of a migration thing, so less of regression testing with all of the old stuff, which is already on the maintenance level, let's say. And yep. also, uh, for the people that are using those versions, if you're still on older versions today, you're probably the kind of person, the kind of organization that isn't looking to upgrade as soon as possible to be on the bleeding edge. So you're kind of happy that you can hold back a little bit, see until this all pans out, and then make your decisions a little bit more carefully, I guess. So, uh, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and of course, there's the uh, there's the renewed renewed focus. I think renewed focus is fair to say. On the fact that uh, you know, cloud is everywhere mm-hmm. in all of the uh, all of the discussion and branding and and sort of uh, stuff that's been talking about, as is AI and ML and everything else. So, yep. yeah, there yeah. I also picked that up. There's a lot of cloud going on in there, and of course, yeah, being in from Azure, I'm all for cloud, obviously. But I also felt a little bit of uh, cloud hype being injected there. It's cloud, so it has to be good. So I'm reserving my ultimate uh, judgment until I actually see what's going on in there because as I said I'm a fan of cloud and certain things make absolute sense in cloud and other things absolutely don't make sense in cloud so they were also pushing the hybrid uh, term a lot where both on-prem cloud one management layer one one approach one way of doing things so it's going to be interesting to see what happens there yeah indeed Um, the the, actually the the data NAMI article that you talked about was it the tsunami yes. one or was it actually That's no it wasn't it so it was the, it was the uh the, the last um paragraph of the um zdnet one oh, actually one which yet. is another one that that you you links uh, in the show notes. have a link in the show notes is i thought was actually a really nice way to kind of sum this up um and i'll, I'll just read it out because i think it is it is so so good it says this isn't a terminus it's a commencement And while life as an adult may be scary compared to being a student, this is also where the big opportunities arise. Training is over, rivalries are set aside, and the opportunities are arrayed and waiting. Let's see how this combined team rises to the occasion. 
the outcome will be impactful on the tech industry overall. I thought that was a very, very mature look at things. There's a lot of doom and gloom and, mm-hmm. and sort of naysaying and, oh, it's just going to be terrible for everybody sort of stuff out yeah. there. It's the internet, you know, what do you expect? But, People fighting, scandal, come on. Yeah, exactly. Page views, page clicks, whatever. Um, but I thought that was a really nice way to kind of sum it all up. This is this is not the uh, yeah the, the sort of the death of all competition. In fact, you could you could say that the they've just reinvented themselves as the brand new David in the David and Goliath story, depending on how that how you are looking at things. So um, yeah, I think it's it's an exciting time to be part of the industry. Yeah, and again, for me, it's the technology that is the important part of it. I don't really mm. care who the company attached to is. I mean, if the, if the solution solves your problem, it's a good solution. If it doesn't solve your problem, yeah. it's a bad solution. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, more news to come, I guess. This is just, as you say, the beginning, the commencement. And uh, we will be keeping an eye on it. And from now on, when new stuff comes up, we will be talking about it. Indeed. Hey. <laughs> so let, t- talk to me about the unbiased unbiased data mining well actually the exaggerated promise of so-called <laughs> unbiased data mining a bit clickbaity here it's an article from wired uh, by gary smith and it's a bit of a fun read actually because uh, i don't actually see the article as having any point <laughs> But it does kind of make you think think about things. And it also talks about Richard Feynman. And Richard Feynman always gives good press. If you don't know Richard Feynman, look him up. And you'll get a gentle introduction to quantum computing. Hooray. But in this case, it's about uh, machine learning and how people use data to do bad things. And it's actually a bit of a paraphrasing of the old adage that statistics prove everything and nothing. You can do a questionnaire, you can do a poll and have anything proven which way you want to make it proved. If you look at data and see what happened, you will be able to prove that what happened happened. And the first example here kind of puts it into... uh, When I started reading this, I thought, where is this guy going with this? But it makes sense. (laughs) So it's about Richard Feynman, as I said, who asked his students to... uh, What's the probability if I go out into the parking lot... And what's the chance that the first car I see has a license plate with, for instance, the number plate, uh, the license plate 6ZNA74? Now, all the students started calculating uh, theories, algorithms, whatever, and they came up with uh, one chance in 17 million. <laughs> and while their math was absolutely correct, Feynman said, that, no, you're wrong. It's actually one, because when I walked in, that's the car I saw there. <laughs> <laughs> which is now known as the, the Feynman trap, I believe. Exactly. And <clears throat> I, I didn't know this one yet, so that's why I think that was interesting. Yeah. And the, the idea you have to look at this is that if he did it the inverse way, if you looked at the statistic, at the historical data set of cars in the car park, and you try to predict how much the chance was that that car would be there, you would, you would predict one, because that's already in there. So anyway, there's a lot, a couple of other things in there. Of course, the Google flu uh, epidemic predictions on based on search queries is also in there, which uh, was a pretty expensive thing for I think the EDC, the, 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 the CDC, who got a little bit overzealous in buying flu vaccines <laughs> based on that thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love the MRI one. 
Yeah, the, oh god, yes. <laughs> so th- this is a, a lot, a lot of machine learning, but trying to predict stuff, trying to find patterns, and uh, a lot of time, uh, often in the medical world, have MRI machines looking at brain patterns and then show people pictures or listen to music and see what in the brain spikes up to predict that okay, this brain part does that stuff and so on. So they did the same thing on a dead salmon. And that salmon purchased at a local market. <laughs> and yes, patterns were discovered. They were, in, they were inevitably patterns, and they were invariably meaningless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the point being that sort of the MRI scans are notoriously sort of noisy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, interpreting noise, yeah, gives you, gives you, I mean, it's what we always say, garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. So when we talk about garbage and there's the Cornell University food papers, the pizza papers, it's it's, it's a good read. <laughs> and basically, yeah. when I first started reading this one, I was thinking, okay, yeah, he's talking about correlations and cost causation, but that's not it. This is different from that one. Because yeah. the, the first one is uh, correlations mean causation means that you can have a enforced uh, result from a machine learning prediction because you have correlated features in your data set. I mean, if I look at a feature set that includes uh, weather conditions like rain and the fact if the road was wet or dry, well, both will uh, reinforce the fact that those conditions, part of a broader data set, will cause things like traffic jams. But basically, a wet road and rain are correlated because one is caused by the other. So that's the difference there. But here it's more about looking at historical data. And what a lot of machine learning does is actually look at historical data to get patterns out of there. But if you know what you're looking for, you will find it. So whenever you're doing that kind of research, make sure you you're, you, you keep an open mind and don't just accept the fact that the data proves that A means B. So what do you think the, the lesson learned here, what do you think that is? I mean, is it that you need to... You need to understand the uh, the problem space better, so that you know when something is utterly meaningless. Or what you know? What, what do you think the What's the lesson learned here? Yes, and no, it's more about the uh, what you're going to do with the results. Because he also had the ex- explanation about uh, a Bitcoin comparison, where yep. at the end of the report, the professor said, "We don't give explanations; we just document this behavior." In other words. This was a thing where they looked at Bitcoin prices and hundreds of other financial variables. Now, if you're yeah. not going to explain anything, then you might as well look at correlation between the Bitcoin prices and telephone numbers. And yes, yeah. you will find correlations there. There will be numbers in the same census, whatever. So it doesn't make sense to just make correct conclusions out of that. And that's why I went with at the beginning with the statistics example. A lot of time, if you look at uh, bad newspapers, they'll have a lot of news articles where X proves Y because Z. And maybe it makes sense when you read it like that, but it doesn't mean that it actually proves anything. Presence of things isn't proof of things. It could be anecdotal. It could just be, yes, if you look deep enough, you will find that President X has talked to President Y in that they and so and at the same time this happened so it must be the same thing so the the, the lessons learned if there's any because i said as i said it's more of a fun <laughs> read actually is that machine learning is a tool that can help but the moment you start using the tools to prove stuff you need to get that uh, you know that, that that well-known common sense thing in there to make sure that you still know about talking about it because, uh, as he says it in the article, this, it's big data hubris to think that data mind correlation must be meaningful. It's not because you find something in the data that it also has to mean something or mean more than the 
small thing that you just found there. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Anyway, it's a fun, it's a fun read. It's a different yep. way of looking at things. Again, when I was reading this first, I thought correlation causation, but this is a different thing. And if you hadn't didn't know about the Feynman trap yet, then uh, Wikipedia will help you further on that one as well. It's, uh, Indeed. It's a, it's a bit of uh, harmless fun. Well, unless you do what our article says not to do. Yeah, which would be bad. <laughs> However, moving from bad to good and good. hackathons. Ah, hackathons good? Come on. Yeah. I mean that. So I've been uh, I've been part of a number of uh, big data based hackathons before, and other hackathons before that. And I'm I am truly convinced that they are a great way of getting a group of people that maybe have varying levels of understanding of the the tools, the tech, the problem space, um, and increasing all of their knowledge in a relatively compressed time frame and having a bit of fun and hopefully you know maybe even de- delivering something useful out of it I'm a big fan of them they do however take uh, in my experience quite a bit of preparation to get them right mm. um so this uh, when this article uh, slid through my uh my RSS feed, um, I thought it was worth talking about. So this is a article from Noid, I guess, dot com. Um, and they're, they're talking about um, different things that they've done. They've run a number of big data-related hackathons. And these are some of the things that they've found that sort of make, make life a bit easier. Um, so they're talking about... You know, try and um, get some sort of cooperation with some sort of consultancy organization as well, so that, um, you know, you will get, uh, or, or some sort of partner organization, so that you will get um, some acceleration from them. And obviously the benefit from, from their side of being involved is they will get to see some of the data, they'll get to understand some of the problem space better. So hopefully there will be business there for them that they can um, successfully bid for. Now, obviously, finding a, a good partner there that, that makes sense is is you know one of those things in life that uh, is obviously going to be a challenge for some organisations, but there are lots of organisations out there that I'm sure be willing to help uh, invest a little bit of time in order to uh, understand you better and to, uh, to sort of get a better handle on what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, and it's also a chance for them to to showcase their wealth of experience and knowledge and all that sort of thing. Um, they also talk about you know, making sure that you've got you know somebody on your time uh, on your side that is able to sensibly lead this uh, this kind of discussion. So you know, having a room full of people that don't really know what they're doing is probably not the ideal uh, way to get started you need a definitely a, a range of people is of different levels of experience is fine but like all brand new people probably not the best uh, the best way to start it um the other thing that i would add to this is really make sure that uh, um you've got something you know ideally you've got some sort of goal in place some sort of target that uh that you're looking at so gamification is great you know divide the thing up into a couple of teams so you've got people um sort of vying for the top spot um but most importantly around this i find personally 
uh, is make sure that you've got data that makes sense. Um, people often start ideas with these kind of hackathons and like, oh, we'll just get, you know, we've got data on this and data on that and data on something else and we'll get some public data and it'll all be fine. And then they find out that, you know, this has got data from this date range and this has got data from a completely different date range and this doesn't actually have anything to do with that and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, you can sort of fudge some of these things, but, you know, the fundamentals of making sure that there's vaguely useful data for people to play with, um, I think is is one of the core things that I still occasionally see people getting wrong on this. So I don't know about you, what, what are your your thoughts towards hackathons and uh, and that sort of thing? I think there's multiple multiple types of hackathons, and this article Very actually talks so. about one that I'm not actually that familiar with. This is more of the competition hackathon where a company... Yeah. Uh, this is actually an article by a group of people that uh, participates in hackathons to gain money, to, to win a prize. So they went to Daimler and a couple of other ones to actually see if they could solve the problem the best and then win first prize and get a couple of thousand dollars in the bank. The kind of hackathons that I... And I think that's a good way of doing things because it has a couple of good things, and I'm going to go into detail on that, you know, that in a second, but the hackathons that I usually work with, uh, uh, around in my line of business are the hackathons where a company thinks we need to do something with uh, big data or machine learning or databases or whatever, which is a good thing. And I don't have anybody who really knows about this stuff, which is very possible. So we need to get these people Mm -hmm. acquainted with it, which is a great thing to do. So let's do a hackathon, which can be good, but often doesn't really work. And it often waters down into more of a... uh, Supervised training, would supervised you say? training, a, a a lab where you just follow the, the the instructions on paper. You click this, cut and yeah. paste that, and you continue. Those aren't hackathons, but those are still good because they will, in a guided fashion, make people acquainted with either the tools or the technology or the ways of thinking. So I'm okay with that. The more of a I, more of a workshop, maybe would more you say? workshopy, but workshops can also yeah. be figured out yourself. And then we're talking about here yep. about really guided labs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More tutorials, if you like. Yeah. The kind of hackathon that I don't like is the hackathon. Mm. Okay, so we have this technology we don't know. We got a group of people who don't know about it. Let's put them in the room and let them make something, and they can choose whatever they want to make. That's way too much degrees of freedom in there. Yeah. The you can still make that work, but then, as you said, make sure you have data sets pre-selected, which you have vetted by people who know the stuff already. Yeah. And then give the people at the hackathon a very limited in scope and clear objective. We want you to yeah, make yeah. this. We don't want you to think about what you could make with this. That's a fine type of hackathon, but you need people that already know what they're doing to be able to make that kind of hackathons. The hackathons yep. for to 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 innovate to to inspire people to just make people play with new stuff should be very focused. So you you don't have to have all the background, the baggage, the foundations to be able to find the needle in the haystack. Give them the needle and tell them to make the best needle. Sounds good to me. But yeah, again, the composition of the teams is also very uh, important because in the article 
one of their uh, uh, observations was that they were good data scientists, but they weren't good in developing software. And they saw other mm. teams making nice dashboards and programs, and they couldn't do that in their first attempt. So they had to yeah. either expand the team to get more of that knowledge in, or do um, or, or educate themselves in that, those different matters. And this also reflects on the hackathons, the team composition, because hackathons typically are yeah. team sport. Yep. You shouldn't be doing this individually. And what I often then see is they grab people from all around the company, from, from HR, from finance, from engineering, <laughs> from IT, put them in a team. So we have all the knowledge in one team, so make something now. Again, variety is good. And if all of these people have done this before, then that's great. But if you're still doing that innovation, let's people look at something new too many differences in the team composition will actually be an obfuscator. It'll make things harder because everyone will try to put his little uh, um, world into the project. And in the end, yeah. you get very mesmerizing results, let's say. Okay. And on that mesmerizing no, note... Just, uh, give me some, <laughs> am I too negative about this? or? Uh, no, well, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I do think that you're right in that the the scope of a hackathon needs to be relatively more carefully controlled than I think people realize. And when I say scope, I'm talking about the data. I'm talking about the participants. I'm talking about, you know, the, the composition of the teams, the understanding of the problem space, all those kind of things. So no, I, I I think you're, I think uh, what you're saying is, is spot on. I think the organizations need to think about this if they're thinking about a hackathon and you're right they also need to think is a hackathon even right for what they're trying to achieve mm-hmm. so the answer isn't always hackathon <laughs> no, sometimes a brainstorm sometimes it's a session it's a lab it's a yeah presentation could be anything uh, sometimes it just could be basic <coughs> training you know, get some basic training under your belt first and then start thinking about uh, no, no, things no. like this. We're in an agile scrum world. We don't do training. On-the-job learning right. is the best way. Yeah. It's a big part of, every, of our everyday life. I agree to that, but it shouldn't... It's still You still require some kind of basic training to get, get your yeah. feet wet and get some background and fill in those gaps in your knowledge. Indeed. Build a foundation. Crawl, walk, run. That's all what it's all about. Roll, walk, run, fall, break your well, leg. Well, hopefully not. Walk again. Hopefully not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right then, on to on to insights and file size. Ah, uh, yeah. For the last one of this um, uh, news episode, let's do a little bit of ranting. I mean, I never rant, so let's do a bit of ranting. <laughs> no, you're so rant free. <laughs> rant free. <laughs> rant free. Yeah. Okay, this is an article on the Forbes website, which isn't my favorite website, so I already hacked their HTML to get rid of the little video player, which goes in front of the text, which is very nice. It's from Kalev Litaru, a writer about AI and big data, with the title, Big Insights, Not Big Data, Why We Should Stop Talking About File Size. It's not a very long article, although it's not the shortest one either. And I got the feeling that this guy, for some reason, got to be in this bonnet about somebody talking about, we have big data because we have petabytes of data. And in his view, that doesn't mean anything. And I'm both agreeing with him, but also have yeah. a big chip on my shoulder about, uh, you're wrong. So first about the okay. positive thing, why do I agree with him? 
what he's talking about is that a lot of emphasis is on the size of your data set. I've got petabytes of data and I've done an analysis, so it must be well founded in the truth because I've had a petabyte of data. Uh, that's a fallacy. That's that's false. That that's, can be true, but probably isn't because from a petabyte of data, you probably only used a percentage maybe 10% of all that uh, data set to do your analysis on it because typically data sets contain a lot of, I'm not going to say garbage per se, but garbage for whatever you're looking for. Things that do not add, that do not help, that aren't yeah, related to the thing that you're Un- looking Unrelated for. metadata, for example. I mean, the the example yeah, that's used in this is the, is the, the Twitter um, firehose yeah. And most people are just analyzing the text of those tweets, which is only actually 4% of the entire data mm-hmm. set. So, yeah. But here you're falling into the statistics thing. Most of these people, well, yes and no, because before, and this is where I disagree with the guy, before you can do that, somebody needs to have looked at the entire data set to find out what good data was. For the Twitter one, okay, that's a basic, the JSON scheme is well known. You know what you're looking for, so pretty, that's an easy one. But if you're looking at uh, business data, a lot of times, not always, if you're doing production stuff, you have a very defined ba- uh, data set, you know what field you want, it's a totally automated, and it's a flow and it's a pipeline, and it's all optimized, great. But before you get there, your data scientist needs to look at number of data sets and see how they can be pushed together, pulled apart, aggregated, differentiated, whatever, to get to the, okay, these are the features we want. So the whole feature selection part of your machine learning, statistics, whatever, analysis, is also part of that of that deal. Now, the Twitter one, again, is a bad example because you should know if you do Twitter analysis what the good fields are because that's a very well-known data set. But for all other data sets, part of the start of your analysis is feature selection and that means you do need that petabyte of data to figure out what the good features are so is he right yes is he wrong yes also (laughs) of course you don't want to grab a a gazillion data sets which you know aren't going to help just to be able to say you had an exabyte of data in your analysis okay that's that's wrong that's bad (laughs) that's just intentionally misrepresenting but still if you had good uh, governance, good selection of your data sets, and you ended up with a petabyte of data before you actually did that first feature selection, then I would say you're you're right to say that your analysis was based on a petabyte of data. Because a petabyte of data came from one source or a couple of sources that were relevant, so all that data was somehow either correlated because cause they caused each other whatever, it was from the same source, so it might or might not have been relevant or important, and your analysis decided part of that as well. Yeah, I think the 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 point that you slightly skipped over there is I don't think it actually it, it it doesn't really matter how much data you have. What matters is the insight that you get from it. Now, if you can get all the insight that you need to make successful changes to your business with a couple of hundred gigs of data, awesome! Like, great, fantastic. Incredible. You know, it maybe if you need a petabyte of data, then maybe you do need it. But, yeah, it, but to get that it, hundred gigabytes, it should all be you probably start well, with a petabyte. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Okay. Maybe maybe all they needed was a couple hundred gigs. And you know, not everybody needs a petabyte of data to make a significant impact into their business. You know, some people are able to do this with relatively small sure. data sets. 
So yeah, I think it's 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 definitely. What you're trying to say uh, is that if you had to start with that petabyte to get that hundred gigabytes to do your analysis, then the guy says then you shouldn't be allowed to say you use the petabyte of data. Yeah, and I agree that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. no, I think that's I think you're right. I think that's fair enough. I'm just saying that not everybody is going to start with that petabyte of data. No, I mean, big data is for big data. And if you don't have big data, I mean, you don't need a Hadoop cluster or a Spark cluster if you have a 10 gig data set. Just do a Python script and uh, do your scikit-learn machine learning regression analysis that way. That's a perfectly good way to work. The whole year to go Mm -hmm. to big data is when you do need to use a bigger data set of all relevant features to do your analysis or... Data, database querying or whatever. Now, there's a second part in the article where he's talking about the hardware-optimized applications, uh, data uh, formats versus mm. the human-readable JSON XML, which, in his opinion, is a bad thing. I would argue that JSON and XML are not human-readable, but go for it. <laughs> uh, I'd say they are, but depends on the human, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> yeah, depends yeah, on the yeah. schema, of course. But I think uh, he's misconstruing here again between the exploration phase and the production phase. If you're in the exploration phase with a lot of iteration, a lot of flexibility required, I think the advantages of XML and JSON have pushed forward the possibilities and things we've achieved so much because people didn't have to spend time uncompiling, decompressing, the deciphering the data, but just being able to just quickly see, oh, this is this kind of data set, this is that kind of data set, I'm going to try this, try that. I think in the exploration phase, it's invaluable to have these human readable things. And if that means that your data set goes from, <laughs> goes from a couple of gigabytes to a petabyte, then that's a price I'm willing to pay. And this is not only so in data. If you look at programming, I mean, the most optimized programming should be done in machine code, guys. Zeros and ones, you don't need anything more than that. Nobody does that. Why? Because you're a lot more productive if you can use higher level abstraction languages like, uh, I'm going to say C as a higher level. It's not exactly high abstraction layer, but if you take C, C Sharp, C++, Python, Perl, things like that, I mean, the higher you go, yes, you will get less optimized programs, but you will be able to work on them a lot faster. But this is only exploration phase. I totally agree with him that the moment you go into production that you have an old exploration, you know this is the data that I want, this is the software I want, now that's an optimization step. At that point, in exploration, you will use Hive tables with 30s to do on-the-fly conversion between CSVs and JSONs uh, into virtual tables. Great. In production, you will create an ORC file of that thing to make it faster, or if the data is small enough, export it to a SQL database or something like that. But mm-hmm. that is in production. And he doesn't make any kind of difference. And that's, again, it's the same remark I have for his uh, statement about big versus uh, small data sets and his uh, uh, hardware-optimized versus human-optimized data sets. It depends if you're in the exploration side or on the uh, production side of things. Yeah. And he doesn't yeah. make that distinction at all. And that's basically my problem with the article. Thus ended my rant. <laughs> <laughs> rant mode off. <laughs> no, no, all good points, I think. So, and it's a bit, uh, I mean, it's not sad. It's, it's an article, it's the guy's opinion. He wrote it and it's a good article apart from that. But uh, it's, uh, I think it's too one-sided and I would like to see articles where 
Sure, I have a point, but also give me the counterpoint. Just like we say when people talk about their experiences with data, sure, tell me what worked, but also tell me what didn't work. Give me your, yeah. give me all the reasons why I should believe you, but also give me the the bigger view of the whole thing where you where you position that into. And often than not, uh, quite often, I I miss this kind of context, if I can call it that, when you read these articles. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. I just want to talk about that, which I have not done. <laughs> uh, well, you certainly have. <coughs> <coughs> any so, feedback? Any 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 pushback on that? No, no. I think I'm I'm pretty much aligned with you. I'm not quite sure I would rant for quite so long about it, but I think I'm generally aligned with your thoughts, though. Okay. Yeah. I, I think though some of it just comes down to how many concepts can you get in a relatively short article. Make the article uh, longer I, I then. Think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in this in this uh, ADD sort of uh, world we live in. Okay, let's start articles. ranting again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay, maybe right. we shouldn't. No, but, yeah, I think uh, actually it's, it's a good point. That uh, it's the short attention deficit uh, problem we have that makes these sh- make the article short. I mean, just like a music uh, a song can't be more than three minutes or it doesn't get played on the radio because it's less than three yeah. minutes these days. We need to have these uh, bite-sized big data articles. And sometimes the and yet, content. Yeah, yeah, and yet Vine is dead. So, you know, go figure. There's obviously a, there's obviously a sweet spot in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but Twitter gets more popular <laughs> than uh, Facebook these days as well. So. Oh, dear, I don't. don't. <laughs> anyway. I think I can uh, say that this is all the time we have for today. <laughs> I think so. We hope that, apart from all the ranting, you did enjoy the serving of bite-sized big data. Anyway, we will be back with more ranting next week with a new episode. <laughs> Although next week will be a topic episode, so less ranting from me, but possibly from a uh, guest or uh, <laughs> interviewee. Until then, please go to www.roaringalphan.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag, and you can contact us by email. Send them to podcast at roaringalphan.org. Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Include any rants you want. Until that next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. I look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. See you later.